Part 1, A Family's Descent into Despair In November 1944, Don married his longtime girlfriend Mimi and the two started a family. After a brief honeymoon, Don, who was a member of the Marine Corps Reserve, left for the South Pacific during World War II. Since then, for many years, Don invested his time and attention in his career at the expense of his family. When the war ended, he promised his wife to settle down. However, he had an affair with a senior officer's wife and broke his promise to Mimi by joining the Air Force. Once again, he neglected his family for his career. It is safe to say that to Don, his role and career as a military officer came before his roles as a father and a husband. Mimi, on the other hand, had always put her responsibilities as a mother and a wife first. She wasn't allowed to be herself and couldn't afford to. Having lost her father at a young age, being away from her hometown and often living without her husband's company, Mimi lacked a sense of security. Hence, she kept having children to fill the void in her heart. To her husband Don, the children were akin to military awards and decorations. He wanted a lot of them, but he also desired a quiet and orderly life. As a result, he often used his work as an excuse to avoid his responsibilities as a father. Don owned the honor and pride as the enviable head of this household, but Mimi was the one doing all the grunt work. At that time, there was a new Air Force Academy in Colorado Spring. Don joined the faculty as an instructor and took over the falconry program. As the media reported on the performances of his cadets across the country, Don's fame grew, not just due to his accomplishment in the academy but also the size of his family. His achievement and reputation won him the respect and adoration of his children. As such, even though he rarely got involved in the household affairs at home and often referred to his sons as numbers, he was still the head of the family. In contrast, Mimi had to deal with the tedious chores of managing the household. She was in charge of cleaning, expenses, grocery shopping, cooking, and laundry. She was also responsible for every child's growth and discipline. With so many kids to look after and a selfish, absent husband, Mimi couldn't afford to be the gentle, soft-spoken mother to her children. She had to toughen herself up and kept a tight rein on every aspect of the kids' life, maintaining the order of their home like a commander. Eventually, Don's career began to stabilize, and the Galvins settled down on Hidden Valley Road in the suburb of Colorado Spring. By the time their twelfth child came along, Mimi reluctantly underwent surgery to remove her uterus due to certain health concerns. The headcount of the kids in the family stopped at twelve, and the young Galvins gradually grew up. The oldest son, Donald, resembled his father in many ways, dashing, athletic, and popular. He presented himself as an authority figure to his younger brothers and even started bullying them at some point. Donald would hit them on the arm, where it hurt the most. He would stage one-to-one -one fights, making his brothers fight each other. At times, he would encourage everyone else to take turns hitting one of the siblings and tell the others that if they did not strike the target hard enough, they would be next. Regarding this situation, Mimi and Don thought that it was pointless to intervene in the conflicts between a group of kids. Soon, bullying became a norm in the household, usually started by the older ones. The boys couldn't even relax on their way to school. If they did not form an alliance with a few other brothers, the rest would gang up on them. The second son, Jim, was the only person who tried to challenge Donald. Jim had always tried to direct his parents' attention to himself from Donald to no avail. Resentful, he began clashing with his older brother. Even if he couldn't win the fight, 
Jim would provoke Donald every now and then. The situation worsened to the point that the two brothers would fight everywhere they went. Finally deciding to intervene, Don tried to make the boys read books that could improve their personalities and teach them how to resolve conflicts. When his approach did not work, he introduced a new rule, no fighting without the boxing gloves on. Consequently, the Galvin household became a place where two worlds overlapped the wrestling pit and the church choir, creating a juxtaposition of two starkly different sides of the Galvins, a group of rowdy, violent children and their apathetic parents versus the model family that Don and Mimi took pride in. Growing up in such an environment, the younger siblings felt lost, abandoned, and unsafe, as though they were not seen as people but merely numbers in the family. In the meantime, their relatives were nonplussed by the conflicting traits and behaviors exhibited by the children. While visiting their cousins in New York, the boys would climb onto the garage roof, shooting at birds and windows with BB guns. Their cousins were surprised and scandalized by the stunt. But months later, the same cousins would then receive Christmas cards from Don and Mimi. In the picture, the boys were seen standing obediently around the Christmas tree in pajamas. The contrast puzzled everyone. Little did they know, they had barely scratched the surface. In the Galvin home, something else was rearing its ugly head, and it started with Donald. In 1965, during his time at Colorado State University, Donald ended up at a health center after jumping into a bonfire at the pep rally. The staff had to pull him out of his classes and make him take a psychiatric evaluation. A clinical psychologist at the Air Force Academy Hospital examined him but did not find any known symptoms of mental illness. The result was questionable, for the psychologist had to administer sodium amytal during one of Donald's sessions, which was known as truth serum at that time. He did however discover a large number of emotional conflicts and recommended treatment accordingly. At the start of the next year, Donald returned to campus. He longed to be normal and connect with others, though his attempts at building relationships did not go smoothly. Worse still, he ran into financial trouble. Unwilling to tell his parents what was going on, all he wanted was to find a place to hide until he figured out what to do. A few months passed, and Donald went back to the health center again. The doctors sent him in for a full workup with a psychiatrist. This time, he revealed everything he had been through, and the doctors there began to get the full picture of his condition. He said that he had run through a bonfire, put cords around his neck, turned on gas, and even gone to a funeral home to price caskets. There was no explanation as to why he had done such things. But that wasn't the end of it. Donald also thought that he had murdered a professor and then shared a fantasy about killing someone at a football game. At last, he claimed to have tormented and killed a cat. It was uncertain which of these incidents were real and which weren't. Based on what Donald had shared, the doctor suspected that he had schizophrenia. Mimi and Don were unwilling to send their son into a mental institution. If they did so, Donald wouldn't be able to finish his study at the university, and it would be a stain on Don's reputation. In addition, the Galvin status within the community might be threatened, and the remaining 11 children had to live in shame. Hence, Don sought help from his old friend, Major Lawrence Smith, and convinced him to write a letter to the university. In the letter, Smith mentioned nothing about the killing of the cat or Donald's murder fantasies because the Galvins kept the truth from him. The major eventually summarized the young man's issue as acute situational maladjustment triggered by a series of bad incidents. He also wrote that Donald had already recovered and was ready for school again.
Eager to get better and become the great son his parents hoped for, Donald started dating. His then-girlfriend was named Jean, and the two even got engaged soon after. Mimi was partly relieved, believing that Donald might settle down and grow to be a grounded, successful, and happy adult. But marriage couldn't save Donald. One day in the third year of their marriage, Jean had enough of Donald and wanted to leave him. After a fight, Jean left the apartment. Donald followed her and threatened to drown her in a ditch but Jean talked him out of it and calmed him down a little. But the next morning, Donald was still furious about Jean's decision to leave him. He concocted a plan and got two cyanide tablets from the school lab that night, trying to take his own life and drag Jean along. The attempt was foiled when Jean freed herself from his hold and ran away to call the cops. Shortly after the incident, Donald received a new diagnosis. His psychiatrist remarked that he was likely an intelligent paranoid schizophrenic. Donald stayed in jail for six days before being taken to the Colorado State Hospital in Pueblo. While he was hospitalized, Jean filed for divorce. Weeks later, Donald was discharged. He did not have to serve a prison sentence due to his mental condition and returned to Hidden Valley Road. By then, his father Don had already retired from the Air Force and became the executive director of the Federation of Rocky Mountain States. He was a grant and aid man who oversaw government-funded programs in several states and often traveled with Mimi to events with the Federation. It was a reputable job as well as a good source of income. However, being in constant travels did not allow them to spend time with Donald. Nor could they afford to let him stay in an institution and ruin the family name. Thus, they decided to get him a gig and sent him out of the state for the time being. But it was only the beginning of their family tragedy. As time passed, the Galvin children were sorted into two groups, the ones who were diagnosed, and the ones who waited for diagnoses in fear. To some of them, it was uncertain which group was luckier than the other. In the first group, Donald might be the first to receive a diagnosis, but Jim was the one who caused the most harm. Not long after Jim and his girlfriend Kathy got married, Jim began to experience auditory hallucinations. He always suspected that someone was spying on, stalking, and conspiring against him. Sometimes, he wouldn't sleep and instead stood over the stove, switching it on and off repeatedly. He often physically attacked Kathy and harmed himself either diving into a lake fully clothed or ramming his head into a brick wall. Kathy was terrified and worried sick. When Jim ended up in a hospital due to a psychotic break, she reached out to her in-laws to discuss this matter with them. Unexpectedly, Mimi and Don did not shed a single tear or express compassion and sympathy. They pretended that this conversation never happened, questioned Kathy's motive, dismissed her concern, and told her that she and Jim should resolve this issue between themselves. The parents did not mention Donald's condition despite the similarities between the two brothers' behaviors. Years after this incident, Mimi and Don did not ask about Jim or Kathy again. Jim's breakdowns occurred every now and then. Not only had he hurt himself, but he had also hurt the people around him, particularly Kathy and their son Jimmy. Similarly, the fourth brother Brian had done the same to others. But to many, his life resembled that of a meteor, dazzling, brief, and destructive, leaving a mark that couldn't be erased. Brian was the most handsome and talented boy in the family. Don nicknamed him the Black Knight because of his jet-black hair. He ran faster, threw a ball harder, and his musical talent was astounding. He could learn a song just by listening to it once, 
and he even formed a rock band with his friends, performing all across the state. In the eyes of his parents, he was a shining star and their pride. When Mimi and Don weren't home, Brian would invite the whole class to his house, throw parties, and take drugs. Even so, he remained an outstanding son to his parents. They never once suspected that he might be dealing with something like Donald did. After graduation, Brian left for the Bay Area and continued pursuing his music dream. He had suicidal ideations from time to time, though it never alarmed the people around him, who assumed that it was the byproduct of artistic romanticism. But on September 7, 1973, the pride and joy of the Galvin family ended his life with a rifle and took his girlfriend with him. In the meantime, half of the children in the family exhibited symptoms of psychosis. They were Donald, Jim, Brian, Joe the gentle seventh brother, Matt the ninth brother and pottery prodigy, and the youngest boy Peter. The rest were afraid that they would fall ill anytime soon. Among them, the third brother John tried to keep himself out of the fray. As a child, he had always been studious and often avoided his brothers at home. In the fall of 1968, John received a scholarship to the music program at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Since then, he rarely came back to Hidden Valley Road and only returned with his girlfriend Nancy for a visit. Some siblings weren't affected by the condition. However, it did not stop their family and society from assuming that they had schizophrenia, too. That was what the fifth brother, Michael, had gone through. He also happened to be the first person who attempted to save his family. Michael was a hippie who smoked weed and loitered around all day. Due to his rebellion against the Galvin family's rules and his frequent fights with Donald, his parents mistook his behavior as symptoms of schizophrenia and sent him into the psych ward. Later on, because of a misunderstanding, he was arrested, charged with attempted burglary, and sent to a mental hospital again. When the news of Brian's death reached him, Michael went to the police precinct with Don. Hearing that Brian had committed a murder-suicide, Michael was devastated. He believed that if he made it to his brother's house in time, perhaps he could stop the tragedy. Mimi and Don could sense how bad this incident had affected Michael. They decided to send him away to stay with their relatives. Michael's grandmother later took him to the nation's largest commune at the time, the farm. The founder of the commune, Stephen Gaskin, had famously said that if one found themselves unhappy, they ought to find the root of the problem and fix it. This was something Michael agreed on. He thought that his parents had gone to great lengths to hide what his family was going through, and their attempts to keep it under the rug were just as awful as the secret itself. Once he returned from the farm, Michael tried to preach Gaskin's idea to his family members. Regrettably, he did not manage to persuade and save everyone. The Galvins were set for a complete train wreck. But some of the worst things that had occurred in this family weren't the boys' psychotic episodes. Rather, it happened to the two daughters. Growing up, their experience had been difficult and at times unspeakable. Two years after Brian passed away, Don had a stroke. Mimi was in agony, not knowing how to keep the terrible situation in her family from spiraling out of control or whether there was an end to their suffering. She could barely handle taking care of her ill sons and husband. One night, she received a phone call from Nancy Gary, the wife of old Baron Samuel Gary. Now, the two women were hardly best friends. They only knew each other through the Federation. However, when Nancy asked how Mimi was doing, the latter let her guard down for the first time and began sobbing. 
Learning of the Galvin situation, Nancy told Mimi to send her 11th child, Margaret, to the Gary's home. Mary, the youngest child, was saddened by the news. At home, her sister Margaret had been her ally and the closest person she had. Now that Margaret was about to leave, Mary protested, shouted, and cried uncontrollably. She couldn't change the adult's decision, nonetheless. As she watched her sister leave, she felt a profound sense of helplessness, for the girl's life at home was even harder than the boy's. Since young, Margaret and Mary had been their brother's toys, often being manhandled or thrown around like footballs. When Margaret had just started walking, her brothers would take turns spanking her. Back then, she did not know any better, even thinking that it was fun and following her brothers around like a shadow. But as she grew up, she began to sense the sexual undertone of the spanking. One time, one of the brothers was told by his older siblings to do her. Too small and weak to fight back or stop the bullying, Margaret craved some comfort and protection. In their home on Hidden Valley Road, however, what the children lacked the most was a sense of security. To seek refuge, Margaret began helping her mother with the house chores. She would listen to Mimi's gripes, put up with her nitpicking, and endure Mimi's constant criticism of her behavior, her academic performance, and even her attempts at painting and drawing. As the brothers fell ill one after another, the girl's safety was threatened. At first, Donald was the only patient at home. One time, when he had a psychotic break, Margaret went to hide in the master bedroom with Mary and locked the door to keep themselves out of harm's way. Later on, Jim, who was never fond of Donald to begin with, intervened. He would step in to protect his younger siblings from Donald, even letting them have sleepovers at his house. To Margaret and Mary, it was a kind gesture, for all they wanted at the time was to be away from Donald. The parents also regarded Jim as their savior. Hence, when Jim started touching his sisters inappropriately, none of them felt anything out of the ordinary. Oftentimes, after his wife Kathy was asleep, Jim would get drunk and come to lie down on the green-flowered couch where Margaret was sleeping. Then he would stick his finger into her. Margaret and Mary were too young to recognize this behavior as sexual assault. Besides, Jim wasn't the first brother who did this to them. When Mary was around three, Brian had also molested her more than once and groped Margaret. As a result, it wasn't until Margaret was about to turn 12 and had her period that she began resisting Jim's advance. Unbeknownst to her, after she fended him off, he soon targeted Mary. Now, with Margaret gone, Mary had to face everything herself. She had angry outbursts from time to time or became quiet and distant. Margaret's departure gave her anxiety and unease. Mary would often stay in her room, tidying her cabinets and drawers, mulling, and hoping to gain some sense of control over her life. But Mimi kept telling her that what she was going through was nothing compared to her brother's sufferings. Helpless and alone, Mary stayed out as long as she could. She would play soccer at school, go to the ballet studio, clean the horse stall for a neighbor, or stay at a secret spot on the other side of the hill in their backyard, pretending that it was a home she could relax in. She envied her sister, who was able to get away. The Garys treated Margaret with care and bore all her living expenses. She even went to the school that their children attended. The Gary children and servants were nice to her as well. On her 14th birthday, she received watches, fry boots, and a full wardrobe of clothes that she could wear to school. Margaret was torn between gratitude and terror. As she lived her new life, 
she enjoyed their generosity while contemplating the intention behind the Gary's kindness. The more she pondered, the more confused and uneasy she felt. In the meantime, Mary had been looking for an opportunity to visit Margaret. One summer, the Garys paid for Mary to join a sleepaway camp for two weeks. During her first time away from home, Mary was able to enjoy herself. At the end of her program, Mary called home and begged to stay. The Garys then paid to let her remain in the camp for another six weeks. From then on, Mary would spend a couple of weeks with the Gary family every summer. In eighth grade, with Sam Gary's help, Mary was admitted into a boarding school that was located nearly 2,000 miles from Colorado Spring. It was her ticket to get away from home. However, later in spring, Jim made a move on Mary again. She struggled and said no to him for the very first time. Still, he got his way in the end and even ejaculated in her. Mary was devastated and terrified at the possibility of getting pregnant. But she was also delirious at the thought of her resistance. She had finally told him off to make sure that he wouldn't hurt her again. Regardless of the terrible assault, Mary was one step closer to freedom. For the first time in her life, she felt that her future belonged to her and her only. However, misfortune didn't let her go. She had no idea what would happen to her when she accepted an invitation to attend a high school party hosted by the older brother of a friend. After all, she was only a young, naive girl finishing her eighth grade. That night, after Mary got drunk, her friend's brother and his friends raped her. When Mary regained consciousness the next morning, she was filled with shame and blamed herself for the incident. Carrying the burden of shame inflicted by Jim and those boys, Mary left for her new school, Hotchkiss. There, she changed her name to Lindsay Galvin and attempted to start anew, keeping a distance from the miserable past on Hidden Valley Road.